So if anybody wasn't here the last time we met a few weeks ago, we started talking about Peter's, well, let me just go back here. We'll just kind of do a quick refresher. So we talked about how, you know, the, the, the text has been shifting focus from, to different people to focus on Barnabas and Philip and, and Paul. And now it's turning our focus to Peter. And so, so Peter is being pre- prepared for greater ministry is, what, what, is what's happening here. Peter is getting an attitude adjustment from God because of his prejudice, racial prejudices against Gentiles. That's the main thrust of this, this, chapter, this chapter we're about to study. So we talked about how he went and he was moving through these Gentile, majority Gentile towns and having these great ministry events. He was having successful ministry in these majority Gentile places. So he went to, let's see, he went to Lydda. And um, he healed somebody there. And then he went to Jaffa and he uh, resurrected Tabitha from the dead. <clears throat> and um, the point of those is to, to start breaking down Peter's prejudices against Gentiles. Okay? So that's the thing here. He had some very successful ministry experiences in these majority Gentile places. And at the end, when we left off there, he was he decided to stay with his brother who was a tanner in Jaffa. Remember, we talked about how uh, tanners were, a tanner's place of business was very disgusting for a fastidious Jew because of the, they dealt with dead animals and dead skins and the smell and all that. And yet, <clears throat> uh, I mean, rabbinical law said if a woman was betrothed and then she found out later that that man was a tanner, she could legally break her betrothal to that man. She was not going to be forced to marry a tanner, but yet Peter chose to stay with this man while he was in Jaffa. And then we started chapter 10. We came to this Cornelius, and we were talking, we were discussing Cornelius, and uh, the question came up about what what is Cornelius's you know, um, state or relationship or standing before God at this point in the text. Uh, my view was that Cornelius is lost and he's about to be found later when he receives the gospel. There were some views expressed that that's not how they understood it, that, it, that Cornelius is, well, just the way, that, the way Cornelius is described in the text, let's just read it. In uh, chapter 10, it says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. A devout, so here's what he said. He's a devout man. He feared God with all his household. He gave many alms to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a, more, as a memorial before God. And that's where we stopped. 
because there, there was a, I made a statement, probably a, an uncareful statement about God hearing prayer and that with Cornelius not being in the covenant, but yet it states right here that God has heard his prayer and has recognized his, his charity toward the Jewish people. We looked at Hebrews chapter 8 and the statements about the new covenant and how the old covenant is becoming obsolete. Now, over the last few weeks, I've spent a lot of time on this, thinking about it, studying on it. I've read the passage several more times. I've listened to some men I trust. I've talked to some men I trust, including Kevin. And so there's two ways, really, we could we could view Cornelius here. He's an old, so a lot of people would say he's an Old Testament saint because of the way, because of the description here describes him as he fears God, he prays, he has good works. And that this is an example of an Old Testament believer being brought into the new covenant. Okay, that's absolutely possible. Uh, there's nothing here that would make me say that could not be true. So <clears throat> let's just kind of, so let's flesh this out a little bit. Let me go back and correct some things I said. Give you my view of it, why I hold the view. I don't want to spend too much time here because this is really not the point of the text. But the question did come up last class. So we're doing a Bible study. So let's let's study it. Let's talk about it and see what's uh, what we think. I see in my Bible, I have a New Living Translation. <laughs> I know it's a little, but it said he was religious, devoted, generous, respected, and sincere. However, he was still spiritually separated from God because he needed to understand the gospel. God sent Peter to present to him the truth about salvation. Be careful not to equate earnestness with righteousness before God. So I well, I'm about to make right that there, very argument. So I, I was like, because I read that, I'm like, <clears throat> okay, I wish I would have said that the last class, but well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it now. I'm um, sort of in agreement with. Because there, we got to remember, this is a very unique time in redemptive history. This is another thing I learned over these last few weeks that I was not taking into account two weeks ago. The two covenants are overlapping right here. Okay, we got to remember that there are two covenants in operation at this time. So let's go back to Hebrews eight, and let's look at this one more time. I just got a few things I want to say about it. Because this is so important that we understand what's going on during this time while the church is being built. And understanding the covenants, I just I, I don't see how we could understand that too much. It's very, very important. So we're probably going to spend most of our time today on this because I, I've been studying on this a lot. I'm going to try to just to make the high points, because we could spend a lot of time right here. But <clears throat> let's start back at verse 7. Read this passage from the Old Testament again, and then what the writer of Hebrews, Barnabas, has to say about it. Okay? Hebrews 8, 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, 
There would have been no occasion sought for a second for finding fault with them, he says. Okay, who's them? Them is the Hebrew people. So the problem with the first covenant was not the covenant. It wasn't God. It was the people because they did not continue in the covenant. So finding fault with them, he says, the Lord says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with our fathers on the day when I took... Okay, one more thing. We read through this. If, if you want to, circle every time I is used here. Every time God refers to himself in the first person, you're going to be... There's a lot of them. This is all God speaking about himself in his covenants. Okay. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. And from the least of the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So, the big thing between these two covenants is that that I see here is that the first covenant had unbelievers. The second covenant does not. In the, oh, in the new covenant, all are believers. That's what he says there. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and saying to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. That's what that means. The old covenant, there were unbelievers. They were circumcised, went to the temple, observed the festivals, observed the food laws, but they were not they were not circumcising their hearts. Okay. Were you just reading from Hebrews 7? No, Hebrews 8. 8. Verse 7. Oh, started at verse 7. <laughs> Hebrews 8, verse 7. Okay. There's that law. That's, I think that's the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament right there. If I'm not mistaken. So then, Barnabas says this. If this is indeed Barnabas, I think it is. When he said, okay, let's go back to, do you think Barnabas wrote Hebrews? Is I think so. Saying? I think so. It's possible. I mean, he was a Levite. At the beginning he was a Levite. But I let it slip. So he served in either a, a temple or in some synagogue because he was a Levite. He was of the tribe of Levi. So he would have known all the covenant stuff very well. This whole book is nothing but a big Encouragement and exhortation to continue in the faith. Don't go. Don't turn back to the old ways, to the old covenant. Yeah. It's just one big encouragement. So you know, maybe I don't know. Doesn't matter. So in verse eight, he says, "For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant." Now jump over to thirteen. He's going to tell us what that what he's saying there. He says, "When he said a new covenant." He has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old 
is ready to disappear. So that's not that language, that tense is it's happening now. It is becoming obsolete. So here's how I'm understanding this. Think of the operating system on a computer, Windows 7. Everybody used Windows 7. So this is, we're going to equate that with the old covenant. Okay? We'll call it Covenant 7 or whatever. It's, it just, this is a, an analogy. Help us, it helped me understand. So at some point, Microsoft announced that they're going to come out with a new operating system called Windows 10. Okay. That's what we have here. God is announcing there's going to be a new covenant. Now, when that happened for Windows and for this, as soon as Microsoft announced that Windows 10 is coming, Windows 7 is now becoming obsolete. It's still in operation. People are still using it. But it now has a timer on it. It's, it's going to end at some point now since they've announced this new one. Okay? And then you go along, and then eventually they release Windows 10. And that's where we are here. You got two operating systems operating at the same time. There's Windows people have went to Windows 10, but there's still a lot of people using Windows 7. Okay, it's still in operation. They're still supporting it, even though there's a new operating system out. But they're also selling and supporting. But at some point, I think it was in 2019, Microsoft announced we will no longer support Windows 7, and that's it. At that point, Windows 7 is now obsolete. It's no longer being supported. If you want to use it, that's fine, but it's, you, you, we're not going to support you with it. There's no more updates coming. It's it, We're moving to the new one now. Okay, so that's kind of analogous to what's happening here. There was an old covenant. God announced, I will affect a new covenant. At that point, the old covenant has a timer on it. It is now becoming obsolete. It has a limited time that it, it's going to be in effect. Jesus comes along. He inaugurates the new covenant in his blood. So now we have a new covenant. But the old covenant is still in operation. There's still a temple. There's still a Levitical priesthood. There's still sacrifices being made in the temple. So that's where we are here. We're kind of in the overlapping time between the two operating systems. Okay. We're going to see that. That's not just something I'm pulling out of thin air. There are still Old Testament believers walking around Israel. Okay, but this is a special time. Now, I say all that to say this. If your view is that Cornelius is an old, before we do that, let's go to Acts 19, 1-7. Okay, Acts 19. Y'all just bear with me because, man, I have studied and thought about this for two weeks, and I've got notes on top of notes, written on top of old notes. So I may seem a little scatterbrained here, but just bear with me. I got a lot of stuff written down here. So what you said, well, I was, that's what made me smile. My friend is a seven-day Adventist. Yeah. I was told. Seven-day Adventist. Yeah. They believe in the Old Testament, and they yeah. stick to a lot of beliefs. In well, it. see, that brings me to another point. Um, what did I say? Go to Acts what? 19? Nineteen. Acts nineteen. We're going to see. Some Old Testament. So, yes. So right now, the both both covenants are in operation. But in 70 A.D., 
God took up the hammer of Rome and he smashed the temple with it. Right? That was God. He put an end to that. He, he Not one stone remained on top of another. No more Levitical priesthood. No more sacrifices. None of that. He put a stop to it. That right there is when the old covenant ceased to operate in God's redemptive plan and the way he relates to his people. Where is that at? What? It's in history. In 70 AD, Rome destroyed the temple. God did. He picked up the hammer of Rome. Rome was a tool in God's hand. God is sovereign over all things. Just like God picked up the hammer of Babylon when he took the Israelites into captivity into Babylon. He says very plainly, my servant Nebuchadnezzar, I have used to... Same with Rome. Rome is not operating outside the sovereignty of God's hand. Okay. When they destroyed that temple in 70 AD, God had picked up a hammer and he smashed it. And Rome was the hammer. Rome was the hammer. Correct. So it's not written. No, the New Testament writings, I mean, some of them happened before, some after. Yeah. But this text was written before because it's not mentioned. I'm bumping my head with this person. It's okay. Well, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. We know that through historical that's not a that's not questioned because there's no temple there you know i mean it's gone yeah it was destroyed in 70 a.d and that's when god basically said i'm not going to support windows 7 any longer yeah so if you're still using windows 7 you're on your own i was studying just sidebar real quick this morning i was reading in the believer's Bible commentary because I'm studying why John referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so in Leviticus, it took me to Leviticus, but in that book it said that Hebrews is like a counterpart to Leviticus. I don't know. I just found that. Well, it, yeah, because Hebrews is the New Testament, basically exposition of the Old Testament of how the shadow, I mean, if you read Hebrews, we could, I could spend weeks on on it. After he leaves leaves us with that, when he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. For the next two chapters, he basically explains that. He fleshes all that out. He talks about the Levitical priesthood, how they served over and over, and day after day they offered sacrifices over and over with the new priest, the new high priest. He only offered his sacrifice once, and then he sat down because his work is finished. Anyway, there's a lot there. Anyway, so yeah, right now we got two operating systems, but in 70 AD, the old one is stopped. Okay, so now go to Acts 19, verse 1. We're going to see another event here. So it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus, and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay, we got some believers here. And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So they haven't been given the whole story yet. Okay. 
And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. That's Old Testament. John's an Old Testament prophet. His, his baptism is a baptism of repentance. Okay. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about 12. So here's some disciples of John the Baptizer. You, they have to know about Jesus because that's who John was forerunner from. But they didn't have the whole story. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. They hadn't been baptized into the covenant yet. And we see that happen right here. So, what does that say about Cornelius? Okay, all that is to kind of, it's all that I'm saying, all that is around Cornelius, this question of what is he right now? So if you want to have the opinion or the belief or whatever you want to call it, of the interpretation of this passage is that Cornelius is an Old Testament believer, Old Testament saint, that's fine. I'm not going to try to talk you out of that because that's, could be, it could be right. I don't know. The text doesn't clearly say Cornelius is an unbeliever, but we do clearly see him come into the covenant later. So here's my view of Cornelius. Like what your paraphrase said. Cornelius is a devout man. He's monotheistic. Okay? He's left the worship of polytheism because he's been stationed in Judea. He's been exposed to the enlightened people of God and their monotheistic beliefs. He's a religious man. Okay? There's lots of religious people coming sitting down in churches every Sunday. They're lost as a goose. Okay? So that you can't equate that with salvation. So my view is that Cornelius is a lost man, but he's a seeking man through the conviction. What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Cornelius and his household are under conviction by the Holy Spirit. He is seeking God. He's a religious man. He's monotheistic, devout monotheist. He's no longer following wrong, uh, you know, Mars and Athena or any of those. My expression is he's been pre-evangelized. That's kind of what I'm saying. He's been exposed to monotheistic thought and belief. He knows that the Jews worship the, they, what they say is the true and living God, that, that God is one. He's the only God. He's aware of all this. He's been pre-evangelized into the monotheistic culture of the Jews. But he hasn't yet received the gospel. Okay? That's coming. So that's my view of it. He's a religious man, devoutly monotheistic man, and he is seeking after God through the prodding and conviction of the Holy Spirit in his life. And God hears his prayers. God, I'm seeking you. Help me. Show me yourself. Teach me, because the answer to that prayer is a vision from an angel. Okay, so let's. So, is everybody is that kind of clear? Mm -hmm. That is that yes. okay? I wanted to uh, just point out some things that I had found, which was 
one, to think about, well, what was Cornelius praying for? And being a God-fearing man, which it says he feared God with all his household, he, he feared the wrath of God. And he knew he was a sinner that needed faith. And so as he's earnestly praying for that, to me it was like before you are reborn as a infant, you are still growing, but you're not born yet. Before you're born in the, in the womb, you're not, you're not born, but you're still growing. And so for Cornelius, because this was a special time, he was growing, but he was not born. If he had lived only in the Old Testament, I think he would have been saved. He would have been saved just the same as we are saved today through the work of the Holy Spirit. Through faith. And so, yeah, I mean, all those steps that we are given that, that glimpse of. Yeah. And so, as God intended to show Peter and those Jews that the Gentiles were going to be saved just the same as the Jews, there was this pause before Cornelius was Say because in um, oh, chapter 11 we read uh, it says uh, so it's uh, chapter 11 verse uh, 14. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So that's talking about Cornelius. So here is very plain. He, he was going to be saved. And so in, in this beautiful story, we see that the plan of God was to show Peter what the great salvation plan is. Or all that he has elected. You just hit on something. Let's see what Martin, Martin has to say. Uh, well, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. <clears throat> so, Abraham was given a promise by God before the law was instituted, 400 years before the law was instituted. And that was to bring all nations to salvation. It says in Galatians chapter 3, and uh, I'm just going to read that one verse. Eight, the scripture for uh, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "All nations will be blessed in you." So Cornelius could not be saved until he accepted Jesus as his savior. He had to accept Jesus as the savior. He had to realize that Jesus hung on the cross for his sin. That he gets a pass to go to heaven, so God couldn't see his his sinfulness. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And so, Cornelius, if you go back a little bit, where Peter seen a vision of the food coming down. Well, we ain't got there yet. 
Okay. Okay. You're, you're, oh, both of y'all are right. So I, he I, had to go preach to him. I go back to this. Cornelius has to be pre-evangelized. But he hasn't been given the gospel yet. Okay. Now, maybe he's an Old Testament believer. Because Old Testament believers were, were justified through faith. Now, they didn't yet know the name of Jesus because he hadn't come yet. But they knew there was a promise. They believed God in all things, believed his word, trusted him. So let me just come back to this. No, before I, I, we, before I, we, I think that he was not saved yet because of God's purpose. Exactly. And if he had been living in only the Old Testament, yes, he would have been a believer saved by, by God. Okay, but let me say, that's not the point of the text. Okay. Look at all the time we've spent talking about is Cornelius a believer here or not. That's not even what the text is about. That's this is this text really is not even about Cornelius per se. Cornelius is a character in this story, but okay, we're reading historical narrative. Rule number one of historical narrative is who is the main character in the narrative? It's not Cornelius. It's Peter. Remember what I said? Last time, this is the focus is on Peter. Peter is being prepared for ministry. Peter is being given an attitude adjustment by God. But this is the beginning of the Gentiles believing. It is. That's what it's about. It's about them being part of salvation. That's that's what we're seeing here. This is a story of the first. Really, he's really not even the first Gentile believer <laughs> because Ethiopian eunuch was also. This is the beginning of Abraham's promise. Yes, yes, that is right. This is Abraham's, the covenant with Abraham coming to fruition. But the, the thrust of this chapter, the main character here is Peter. It's not Cornelius. Cornelius is a second, actually he's a third character. But this is, what we're looking here is that God, who is the main character of all this, is miraculously orchestrating events to break down Peter's racial prejudices. And I say the miraculous because we're going to see. This is not, God doesn't do this just providentially and so-and-so happens to be here at the right time. He actually sends an angel to Cornelius. Then he actually gives Peter a vision. And then he actually speaks to Peter and says, these men who are here, I sent them. Go with them. Okay? So God has taken a direct hand and bringing Peter and Cornelius together so that Peter can preach the gospel to this Gentile. Okay? That's what's happening. But the subtext underneath, running underneath all of that, is he's breaking down Peter's stubbornness toward the Gentile people and towards change in the church. Because the danger here is that this Christianity is just going to turn into this offshoot of Judaism. And you're just going to have these, some Jews believe Jesus is Messiah and some Jews don't. So we got to get beyond that. We don't want to have the first Baptist church in Jerusalem. That's not what God's plan is. So he's he's changing Peter's mind here. That's the subtext running underneath all of this. Now, we want to focus on Cornelius because he's us. If not for Cornelius, we're all over here lost and going to hell. And that's natural for us to want to focus on that. And it is important. I'm not saying Cornelius' conversion is not important. 
I'm saying it's not the main thrust. The main thrust is Peter. And his, this whole thing from him, from the two miracles and these Gentile things, the, the uh, vision of the animals and unclean animals mm-hmm. and the sheep, this is all geared toward Peter. You're not wrong. You're wrong. I'm right. This blessing is for all people, not just the Jews. Okay? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that's, I would agree that Peter is focused because Peter needed to see that that God works, and he's already been saving Gentiles. And, he, and he's showing all of them through Peter because Peter's the leader of the church, so he's he's got to change Peter's mind, show Peter, so Peter can pass this on. So here's why I'm saying this. Look, there's this little, there's a few, there's a few verses here about Cornelius, you know, one through eight. Then there's this long section of Peter. And then Peter is involved in everything else. Peter is never out of view here except for this one little section during the vision with with the angel. So the main character is the main point. The main character here is Peter, not Cornelius. It's God, Peter, Cornelius. They're all important. Okay? Now, now that we've... <laughs> how much time we got left? <laughs> we got the rest of our lives. <laughs> uh, and next Sunday they'll all be here and we can do it again. No, we're not going to do this. It's, it's all recorded. It'll be online if they want to listen to it. So let me just say this one more time. The main thrust of this chapter this, not even this chapter, this text, all the way through to 11.18. Is God is miraculously orchestrating events to break down Peter's racial prejudices and his stubborn resistance to change, resulting in the salvation of Cornelius and his household. Okay? That's, the, that's, my, that's my layout of this, what we're about to read. What we're seeing here is God at work in his church. That's the that's the that's the thing we're seeing. He's working directly in these people's lives to bring these two men together. Why is he doing that? Well, many reasons. For what you said about what is Cornelius praying. We don't know because we're not told. We're not given his it's not recorded. But I can imagine he's praying. God of Israel, reveal yourself to me. Send me someone. Help me. Help me know. Help me understand. Show me who you are in response to that. And he answers that prayer by sending this angel. So let's just read that. Let's get past this, okay? What are you reading? Uh, Well, we'll go back to four. They see his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Tanners had to be by the sea because they required enormous amounts of salt water. And they're kind of outside the town. They had, remember, they had to be, they were required to be at least 50 cubits outside the town because of the smell. And the Jews hated it. They didn't like it. Is that what, was that right? Yeah, 50 cubits. 
communicated him with the birth and pains that just formed the baby. So when the angel who was speaking had left him, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier. That's a Roman soldier, okay? That's important. Two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So what do we see here? Cornelius prayed. His prayer was answered. He was given a command. He, he obeyed immediately. Um, seems to me Cornelius is under, he's under some really direct work of the Holy Spirit, him and his household. He's hungering. You know, he's, he's really seeking God here. And God's going to answer his prayer. And he, so he, he hears the command from the angel directly from the mouth of an angel, this Gentile man, and he obeys immediately. But he, and he sends a Roman soldier to this Jewish man to go ask him to come to his house. Well, I don't want to go into this Peter's vision and then have to stop halfway through. This is a good stopping point. Um, so, I, you know, I hope all that made some sense. I didn't cloud it up even more. Good time. But just the main point I wanted to make is that it's okay Whatever your view is of Cornelius, it's okay. Because we're not told directly, explicitly by the text. And it's really not even the point of the text anyway. But if you want to say he's an Old Testament saint, okay. Uh, I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. I don't think he is because of the, the flow of the text. Is that we're going to, Peter's going to give him the gospel and he's going to be saved. So... But, and I wanted to give us, let's get our heads right about what we're looking at here. It's not about whether Cornelius is saved or not in verse 4. It's, it's about what is God doing with Peter in this text. He's preparing Peter for greater ministry. So, yeah, let's stop right here. We're going to stop it. Verse 8, where Cornelius has a vision and he obeys immediately. Let's stop right there. Okay.